Good morning. I'm Craig Fuller. I'm here with Amy Davis, the president of the New Power Division at Cummins. Amy, you've got a big role looking at the future of a company that's been around for many, many decades. Uh, Cummins is largely identified with the diesel engine and the internal combustion engine, but your job is to think about the future. Tell us a little bit about that transition. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, Cummins, as you might know, is over a hundred year old company, traditionally in diesel engines, but really power solutions. So I would say in 2015, 16, we started getting really serious about looking at electrification because we know that uh, the world is decarbonizing and a lot of our traditional applications would be looking for alternative power solutions. And so we started by really building off some of our traditional hybrid electric work and, uh, and then building a portfolio of different kinds of solutions that we think are gonna work for our applications. And we incubated that within our strategy organization, um, you know, kind of just looking at different hypotheses, uh, rationalizing those, pulling in some acquisitions, uh, just doing some minority investments. And finally, in 2019, we pulled this in, formed an electrification business and then we rounded that out with some hydrogen acquisitions and we called it New Power in 2020. And I took the helm in July last year. Well, congratulations. I, I imagine if you're successful uh, that it puts pressure on the rest of the organization. Is that how you think of it? Is the goal to innovate and disrupt the core diesel business or is it to be complementary to the rest of the organization? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, if we don't think about disrupting, we're not gonna succeed. So we really have a, a disruptive zero carbon kind of solution mindset. How do we find the best end game that's gonna work for all of our traditional customers? But because we have a huge portfolio of partners and customers that we've worked with for a lot of years, in some ways we have to help them with the transition. So um, while we are putting zero carbon solutions out there, these end customers, they're gonna have a five, 10, 15 year kind of transition that they're managing. And so they're gonna have different uh, technologies in their fleets and in their businesses that they have to deal with. So while on one hand, my business is looking forward to the future, on the other hand, we're holding hands, if you will, a little bit with our customers, helping them pick and choose, pilot the right technologies, work it into their maintenance solutions uh, and partner with them through the transition. A couple of years ago, Elon Musk presented the Tesla Semi, and it was, in, in many ways, sort of the uh, coming out party for a, a broader uh, audience aware that electrification could come to trucking. Tesla's yet to produce the Tesla Semi. There's a lot of conversation around it. How do you think about what's happening in electrification? Is it a lot of noise at this stage, or is this something that we're going to see within the next couple of years? I think it's coming fast. I really do, especially the way battery technologies are moving so quickly and coming down the cost curve. We're gonna see battery powered trucks more and more. Certainly we're seeing it in the bus side of the business, um, the light and uh, pickup and delivery kind of uh, segment of the trucking is seeing more and more electric vehicles enter in. And so I think that um, newcomers are exciting for our business. I think it's bringing innovation and it's pushing all of us. Uh, so I welcome it. But I do think uh, heavy-duty truck segments and certain applications will struggle for some time because of range, because of the power requirements that they have, the duty cycles that they perform. So I think it's going to be different paces depending on the application. 
but I think it's going to come a lot faster than probably some people are thinking right now. And maybe we need to be talking quickly about how we get ready to adapt it into the, the fleet. Because that's what's really going to be the challenge, I think, is the infrastructure that needs to be in place to support this equipment, whether it's the charging or the fueling for hydrogen or other things. Uh, that has to come along to make this a, a usable piece of equipment. So, Amy, where do we, where do you think, or where are you seeing early adoption? Is it in the local, uh, where you have a confined area, uh, municipality type applications, small fleet applications? Um, is that where we'll, we'll see electrification really take hold in the initial phases? I mean, most certainly where incentives exist, that's where we're seeing it right now. You know, where we're seeing it, the the cost is coming down, but it's still not on par with traditional technologies, and so therefore where making money on your equipment matters, uh, some incentives are helping people uh, make the business case for themselves. Um, that, and I would say municipalities and um, government kind of subsidize applications like transit bus, uh, school bus, places where there's a lot of, of pressure to find zero carbon solutions for passengers. And, and trains is another example where electrifying train lines um, has a lot of momentum. And being able to do that with a hydrogen solution, even though it's very expensive, compared to building out electric rail lines over miles, uh, it's actually not so far off in cost. So the places where there's incentives or subsidies or where the cost can come close to what the equal cost of decarbonizing in another way might be, and the pressures are there to get that done, we're seeing it happen. Otherwise, I'm seeing more pilots, more, let me look at the technology. People are wanting to look at it, see how it can integrate into their applications and into their the rest of their fleet, start to get comfortable with it and find some uh, alternative solutions that they might be choosing from and playing around with a little bit, if you know what I mean. So Cummins is a global company. You're seeing uh, a lot of pressure globally uh, with countries uh, going to net zero carbon emissions. Uh, but you also see states like California that have made uh, a point of, of moving towards net carbon zero. Are we going to see electrification on a global basis before we see it in the United States in terms of ubiquitous uh, electrification? I do think different countries are moving at different paces, and that's changing all the time. Um, certainly Europe is a little bit ahead of us in my mind. They are making ambitious statements, putting money aside, making the uh, commitments in their budgets and uh, actually putting programs in place. And so we're seeing our Europe customers really acting a lot faster than let's say the US. China was uh, there as well. That slowed down a little bit, but I still see them from a government perspective, uh, making decisions. And because of their structure, they can then uh, make that happen with the funding. And so I expect them to also be quite early. But I, I also have seen a lot of movement with the new administration, a lot of discussion with the infrastructure bill and other things. So who knows where the US will come in terms of um, some of these policies that are shaping up right now and uh, whether that'll accelerate us. You mentioned hydrogen, uh, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of, uh, some would say noise, but a lot of attention uh, also paid toward hydrogen. 
All right. It's it's been the fuel of the future, but it's been the fuel of the future for many decades. Are we are we actually going to see a hydrogen future in the near, sort of the near term? I have to agree. I mean, since I've had my career, I've got 26 years with the company, and fuel cells have been right around the corner for that entire career. Uh, but I see a lot of different things right now that are moving. Uh, first of all, again, governments are making commitments for hydrogen production and green hydrogen production. And so that infrastructure is going to be key to this playing out. And if the governments are willing to fund that and industry partners are stepping in and wading in heavily into that, um, I think that's a, that's a different sign. Also, the technologies are moving. Um, we, we see many players now um, really working to focus the technologies down the cost curve. And so there's now a, a really line of sight to a TCO of a fuel cell to a diesel in something like a heavy-duty truck application, depending, again, on some of the infrastructure um, moves you know, which will be a key part of it in the hydrogen cost, it could be 2030 to 2035 where you start to see some parity. That's a long way out, but not really, you know. It's 10, 10 years out, 10 to 15 years out where you could see a TCO on par. Um, that's pretty close. Yeah, especially with, as you mentioned, the pressures around climate and government regulation and taxation that's uh, probably upon us, um, whether it's this administration or future administrations, I imagine, uh, that that will be a reality that we all have to contend with. Um, the thing that I've always sort of struggled with, and you've mentioned, you've touched on it, is the infrastructure question. Uh, you know, fleets are all concerned about total cost of ownership, which is not just about running the truck or the, the vehicle, but it's all of the other components. And one of the biggest risk items is when inevitably these things break down. You know, they're mechanical parts, even the most... Uh, well-built vehicles in the world occasionally uh, have maintenance issues. How does a fleet get comfortable in an over-the-road long-haul environment where they're running across places like Wyoming and Montana and there isn't infrastructure for hydrogen or electric maintenance services? How can a fleet really sort of embrace this technology? Or is it a matter of it's unlikely that a long haul fleet would embrace it until the infrastructure is there. It seems like a chicken or egg problem. It does, it absolutely does. I do think this is an exciting place for Cummins. It's one of the areas where an incumbent like us with a huge distribution footprint, uh, deep relationships with a lot of end user applications and end customers, OEM partnerships, which expands even further the footprint. It gives us a leg up to give some of these fleets confidence that we can get people there to support it. There's no doubt in our industry, these are tough applications. This isn't a, a passenger car going to the grocery store. These are um, equipment. This is equipment that does heavy work for profit, and so uh, it's not going to be taken lightly. And um, having partners that can be there to support it is going to be important. And the infrastructure build out is going to, I think, take some really unique forms. I think, yes, there will be some traditional pipeline build out and, and the oil and gas companies are, are stepping up and interested and you're hearing them now uh, talk about it. And I think it's going to be um, a, a key part of it. But also we're seeing industry players start to do their own. 
and roll their own corridors and start to uh, partner up with consortiums and say, hey, like California could be a great example where there's a lot of talk around, uh, given the regulations, that could be a nice place to build a corridor of infrastructure. And then you can start to, to get the technology there and get the fleets comfortable with it in a very specific uh, location. And then, so we might see a combination of corridors with a broader infrastructure build out over the 10 to 15 years. Amy, does, is part of the thesis that government regulation is inevitable in this? Is this uh, sort of, as we sort of look at both social pressures and regulation really driving electrification and, and net carbon, is that really the thesis that Cummins has, has made as they sort of have made these investments? Um, or at what point do we see the cost curve get to where without regulation, without taxation, electrification or hydrogen, hydrogen makes sense? Well, for Cummins, it's actually a part of our core values. We actually put our own 2050 planet goals out there uh, to decarbonize our entire business. Um, one of our core values is that everything we do leads to a cleaner environment. And actually back in the 90s, earlier in my career, as the regulations were coming out on NOx and particulates, uh, some of my competitors were pushing against that. And Cummins actually has a longstanding history of partnering with regulators and trying to find a way to do, to make the moves uh, in a way that the industry can support, the technology can support it in a cost-effective way. So this is core to what we do. Um, I would say I, I do believe that regulation is going to have to play a part in this. At the end of the day, um, someone's going to have to pay. You know, this infrastructure is not free. Um, this, this transition, um, the, the charging stations, the transition to hydrogen fuels, the technology uh, development is really only one piece of it. There's a lot of investments that have to be made. And the question is, you know, who, who does that? Um, and do the, does industry do it and pass it all to consumers? Do, is there a partnership somewhere in there? And, and I think that's, that's why regulation has to play a part in it and have to uh, work with industry to pace it in a way that the consumer can bear it, that uh, we actually make industry better as a result of it, the, the experience for our end customers and our consumers better, uh, not a jolt and a shock. It has to kind of be paced in, I think, uh, so that it can be digested in a way that that it can be, um, yeah, uh, not one one group somewhere pays the whole bill. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and it seems like it's very gradual. It's interesting because we we every time you hear regulation, it's always a very polarizing conversation. But having traveled the world to un places that don't regulate uh, pollution uh, and and actually lived in Hong Kong in 1999, where the air was very dirty. Uh, and I remember just how you would go, I'd go back to my dorm room and I would be covered in soot that was out from just the, the, the environment where it wasn't as clean and the air that had come through China. We're very fortunate in the United States that there have been over the last couple of decades, significant uh, regulations around uh, air pollution and, and air quality. Uh, and I wonder when we go 20 years in the future, how our kids will perceive things. You look at these old photos and videos of of cities and what they look like in the 1960s, it was completely different back then. And we forget that a lot of that is not just uh, the regular regulation environment, but it's been the technology evolution that's enabled that. Absolutely. I mean, the regulations uh, 
give us inspiration in some way on the technology. It sets a bar out there too, you know, and I think there's, um, it, it, you know, it helps us avoid a complacency in technologies. And I feel that right now. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons I'm so excited to be leading new power because there is an imperative to innovate, you know, and, and we've been doing that with the diesel engine for a hundred years uh, incrementally. Now we're to the point where incrementally, uh, tweaking here and there, and now it's a uh, uh, compulsive innovation with step changes. And um, that's what it's going to take to get this sort of on par 2030, 2035. I'm talking about each step is significant. Um, and I, I do think regulation plays a part of that. Industry steps up. Um, and where industry steps up, that that's where you know we, we get real good societal benefit. Amy, when you talk to customers that are looking at uh, making investments in newer technology, cleaner technology. A lot of conversations have been around the ESG, but one of the common sort of beliefs or people that are sort of cynical about how realistic ESG goals are is that it's greenwashing for companies, that they are just doing it to, you know, they put these really long dates out in the future and don't actually intend to deliver it because they're not really held accountable. Are you seeing sincere commitments among companies to implement green technology and move towards net zero? Or is this just marketing speak? I think it's real. And, and you know, I have a little cynic in me too, I, I have to confess. And so I'm sure there's a mix of players out there in terms of, um, you know, how they're looking at this and what kind of, how they're positioning their commitments. But I see some real exciting action and I'm seeing like, the customers that we called on have, you know, historically been the, um, let's say the maintenance departments or this kind of things in fleets. Now we're actually, we're working with sustainability offices in conjunction with the maintenance offices. So we're seeing different conversations happening within our customer base. Um, we're seeing them push and drive the maintenance teams to be, uh, you know, saying, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to trial it. Um, there's or, there's more orders placed for electric vehicles than the industry can produce right now by fleets, just as an example. Um, so they're willing to take the step more than ever before. And I think some of it is sure a shareholder push, but some of it is, you know, company values. And, you know, for me, this past year has been a really interesting um, change of tone. I don't know if it's just media because I, I feel it in the conversations I'm having with customers that they're taking it more seriously and they're putting their, their money and their plans behind some of this. Yeah, I think it's, we, I've had the same conversations. I often wonder whether COVID, because of just the fact that we're not, we're not immune to nature, sort of reminded us that we're still a part of a much bigger sort of society and world. And Unfortunately, Mother Nature uh, is still in charge. Uh, and so we've sort of somewhat forgotten that at times. Uh, our own sort of humanity and hubris has sort of caught us uh, uh, by surprise. Um, but it is interesting because there's been so much attention uh, played to ESG. Uh, we've seen what happened at ExxonMobil where activist shareholders are starting to take control of the board and are saying it's not just about financial returns, but it's also about what you're doing for society. You have, have mentioned that Cummins also has, has made commitments that go beyond just commercial interest, but a broader goal. Um, and it's, it's an exciting time. I have to ask, as you think about the technology between hydrogen and electrification, 
Um, a lot of it is centered on battery technology or the ability to store power, even in, in the hydrogen environment. Are we going to have batteries that, from a weight standpoint, are, are, are going to be much lighter weight than what they are today? Yeah, I think there's still a lot of battery innovation ahead of us. There has to be for this to really take hold. It's such an important point a lot of people don't really think about that whether it's a battery electric vehicle or a fuel cell electric vehicle, there's a battery in all of them. And so you make such a good point that that energy storage is now uh, moving from tanks to batteries. And so how do we do that in a way that uh, the mission of the equipment can still be served? That to me is a lot of the exciting innovation that has to happen. It's going to be the application specific packaging and design of the powertrains to optimize for weight, for energy storage, for the work it has to do in the mission and not compromise on the traditional things, whether it's the haulage, um, you know, the things that, that our customers actually make money doing. Um, and so, so I think that's where innovation has to happen around charging time, weight, packaging of the storage, the life of the cells, um, lots of innovation to come there. And, and we're, you know, we're all over all of those spaces. I think this is one of the places, again, where Cummins knows these duty cycles. We've been in it a long time. We know the actual work our customers do. And that's not to say um, that Tesla, for example, doesn't have great innovation. Um, and they've brought that to past cars, but it's very different in a mining truck or in some of the other applications that we've got a hundred years dealing with. And I think that will matter. I'm very cynical about, you know, we have written a lot of articles at Freightways just to, even back in 2018 about whether Tesla ever actually produced the semi. It was, but one of the things that I think Elon Musk did was he reminded the industry, reminded the world that this industry is fascinatingly big and technology is coming. I think in some ways, whether he ever produces the vehicle or not, uh, really ignited this sort of arms race of technology innovation and investment uh, to, to, and, and broader awareness. And so I think there is some credit there, but to your point, they're a passenger car vehicle, doing commercial vehicles is very different uh, than doing passenger cars. And uh, they seem to have their hands full with just producing and keeping up the demand in the, the automotive side. So we'll see what happens in the commercial side. It's a very different environment, um, but it is, it's an exciting time. I, I, it's interesting because I think trucking or commercial fleets get sort of a, a reputation of being a, a really sort of boring niche that's unsexy and dirty in some ways. But what's happening right now around technology, I think this is the most exciting time. And certainly I've been in it my whole life, but it's the most exciting time I've ever seen. It's, uh, it's really transformative. Yeah, I agree. And I couldn't agree more with what you said about these newcomers coming in and pushing us. What, what they're doing is uh, showing it's possible. Like, here's the bar here, you know. And, and by the way, all of us who've been in it a long time, oh, we can get there, and, you know. And um, so, so we're responding, and, and I think it's exciting. And I've also been in this industry for 25-plus years, and... Um, I agree with you. It's, um, you know, this is the heart of most countries, right? You're moving things, you're doing the core work uh, that, that underpins the economy. And for it to transform, you know, it, it I, I mean, I think it's exciting. It's like you're transforming the underpinning of 
like you said, the, the dirtiest, the, the baseline of what we do to move things and move goods in society uh, and decarbonizing that, um, that changes the world. But it is, it's, it's so, it's an interesting time because COVID and what's happened with supply chains and the breakdown and resilience, I would argue that not only has it been a ton of breakdowns in the supply chain, but there's also been this response created by the industry uh, that I think is now a broader awareness, but we're also talking about mission critical things. And we talk about the new sort of entrance in the market, often what's not understood by the broader investing public or the retail investors is when a fleet is making a decision to buy a vehicle, dependency and consistency and knowing what to expect and wanting a company to stand behind it with infrastructure is among the most important decisions they, they make, which is why companies like Cummins and the existing legacy companies are probably in a much better position to succeed in this revolution on the commercial side of things than uh, a new incumbent that lacks that infrastructure. At least if that new incumbent tries to do everything internally versus partnerships or really sort of building on the infrastructure that's there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Of course, I have a little bit of a bias here, but I also have just a lot of years in this and uptime is kind of what you're saying is everything in our customer applications. I can't think of a, a customer application almost where it isn't a direct dollars to the bottom line when trucks or vehicles or equipment's down. And uh, right now it is new technology. It is unproven. And what we're seeing in some of these heavier duty cycles is you know, a one or two pilot in a fleet. Well, most fleets have redundancy to handle that. And so they're, they're able to experiment with the technology and still preserve their uptime. As we start to shift to 25, 50% of someone's equipment being in this new power category, the reliability and the durability has to really be transformed from where it has historically been. This is where we think it's a huge focus for us is creating controls and the total systems that will live in these harsh environments. Um, not everyone's focusing on that. I mean, some of the newcomers, while they're pushing on the envelope, they're also throwing stuff out there uh, that I frankly just don't believe will live. And as that proves out and the industry shakes out, uh, I think that'll be key to who lands on top. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I learned as a technology founder, uh, someone told me many years ago who's been around technology startups and says, when you have a new technology in a new company, com big enterprises don't are not comfortable with it. You can be a new company in an existing category and, and be successful, but it's very difficult to solve for both being an unknown vendor because we're talking about mission critical stuff and no, nothing is more mission critical than particularly in a supply chain is uh, hauling freight and keeping that thing running, as we've sort of learned this year, uh, how critical it is. Um, and, and you make another interesting point, which is when you're talking about a truck, a vehicle being down at a cost of $700, $800 per day, that costs a lot of money if that thing's down for a week. And and you and and so it's just there's a much different conversation that has to take place on the commercial side as it does on the consumer side of someone buying an electric vehicle for their own purposes, because uh, they're not, they don't have the same level of constraints and, and concerns, frankly, that our, that our industry does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm personally feeling a little bit challenged with is 
that we are trying to design the systems for the ultimate application. This is our differentiation. We know the duty cycles, so it's not a one-size-fits-all. And there's a little bit of a bang-it-out mentality happening with some of my competitors right now to try to uh, standardize and, and throw some stuff out there. And that's interesting for the short term for a couple of people who might want one or two of this or that in there. Um, but really putting the stuff in there that's going to do the work most efficiently and cost effectively, that's what we're about. Um, but we are doing it in a way, I mean, you mentioned innovating, um, you know, innovating in a big company is, um, you know, I, I think in some ways we're well, we're better positioned because I have this vast uh, technical R&T team to call upon. We have the ability to do strategic acquisitions and we have the ability to fund it for a long time with this big cash base from our core uh, business. At the same time, uh, you know, we separate ourselves a little bit in new power within Cummins. Um, so I don't report to the traditional lines. I report directly to the CEO. We are a little bit outside of the, the traditional business uh, way of doing things so that we can apply agile processes and try to be a little bit more nimble, attract some competitive talent, and, uh, and really keep our innovation cycle up with our competitors, which is probably a little bit faster than what we've been used to historically in diesel. So we are uh, straddling that. Uh, I think we're well positioned, but it's something my team is constantly mindful of is how do we keep innovating and staying separate and knowing that we're competing with different players than we ever have before. Amy, how does it for you personally taking a role where you're, you're the disruptor of the, the family of the company in uh, dealing with a lot, you know, the folks that are in the core operations are interested in what's happening this quarter, trying to get production cycles out, uh, get the new models for the next year. You're thinking about the next five and 10 years. How does that, how does a company with the scale and the history and the responsibility that Cummins has sort of deal with that friction that is inevitable? Yeah, I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, the one thing that I find I'm a little bit lucky most of my employees want to come to our side of the business. So, so that's one of the things that probably some of my colleagues would say is a little frustrating because there's, it's an exciting place to be. I get a lot of people wanting to come on over. Um, but in terms of friction, they're really, I, I think we have a really good partnership. And so one of the benefits that our core business uh, has and brings to us is this deep relationship. So when you're selling, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of diesel engines to certain OEM partners or customers, or you have new development programs that you're doing that you're launching today, uh, you have very senior level cadence kind of meetings. And that gives us the opportunity then to say, hey, let's take 30 minutes and talk about your next um, electric vehicle that you're going to be introducing and how can Cummins help. And so I find that we have a nice pull in at those right moments and a cadence with those customers that enables me to keep in front of them constantly with our newest innovations. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, I, I think we're seen as a really exciting part of Cummins. And so, so far anyway, uh, it's real complimentary. Are you, are you in Indiana for you at, or is this in Silicon Valley? Where's home for you? Yeah, so right now I am all over the place. Um, I am based in Indianapolis, but I have very little of my business there. Our hydrogen business is mostly in Canada, 
Um, our hydrogenics acquisition was in Mississauga, Canada, and so that's kind of been a headquarters to build around for most of the hydrogen business. There's also a, a, a big site in Belgium as well for hydrogen, and we're launching a, a plant in Germany for the Alstom trains. And we have a big powertrain integration center in California, and we're actually expanding that into West Sacramento. And so that's where we will be building hydrogen vehicles, um, tailoring battery electric vehicles. Um, and then we have a battery plant in Talent, Oregon, and uh, a R&D center in the UK and in Wuhan, China. And I have a small team in Indiana that does some R&T as well as we do some battery manufacturing also in Indiana. But um, as I said, one mechanism for not getting tied into the any of the bureaucracy of the core is keeping where these acquisitions were, keeping the talent there and building on that uh, in those locations. And that's been our strategy. That's awesome. Well, Amy, I'd love to dive into supply chain, but unfortunately we don't have any more time Darn. Uh, because the conversation is fascinating. It is such a fascinating and exciting time. Uh, so it's going to be awesome to see how Cummins and others really build the future of what of what this industry and others look like. So, Amy, really appreciate your time today. Hope that we can continue this conversation in Chattanooga at the Future of Freight Festival coming up this November. I uh, hope that you'll join us there uh, to talk about all of the things that Cummins doing as well as what the future looks like. Sounds great. Hope to be there. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you.